now, for the first time in our history, I think, the connection that exists between where an individual works and where they live has been severed to some extent. Hello and Happy New 2017! I am Boyan First and you are listening to a new episode of Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. We've been off the air for a little bit, but we have some exciting new episodes lined up for you. We are going to talk about rural curling clubs, social media and farm games, small businesses in rural Canada, healthcare, research ethics and indigenous languages education. All of that and more is coming up in the future episodes. Today, my guest is Michael Hahn. He is Canada Research Chair in Immigration and Ethnic Relations at Western University in London, Ontario. I had a chance to speak to Michael last year in his office. We started our conversation with Michael outlining some broad trends around immigration in Canada. Here is that conversation. Well, one of the big things that's happened over in recent years is that uh, the Canadian government has really started to focus on the recruitment and retention of high human capital immigrants. Um, This has probably been going on for the last 20 years, but I think it's really accelerated in, in recent times. And one of the things that we need to do as researchers is identify the extent to which this human capital is actually being realized and actualized in our Canadian labor market. So, you know, it it doesn't make a lot of sense to recruit engineers from all over the world if we're not going to provide appropriate employment opportunities for them. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, The other thing that I'm looking at more recently is identifying the transitions by which people become permanent residents in Canada. So coming in as a refugee is one possible way to come to Canada. You'll often begin your life here as a temporary resident because you have to seek asylum and that has to be processed. And then you make the transition to permanent residency. Another possibility is to come in as a caregiver or perhaps as a student. All of these, I think, are often student, uh, uh, they're strategies for coming to Canada without necessarily going coming in immediately as a permanent resident. I look at uh, what happens to people once they come to Canada and ideally once they become permanent residents. Do they stay in their initial destination or do they subsequently take off? We don't know a lot about chain migration in Canada. We don't know necessarily, we know in a single year what the composition of immigrants are, but we don't know how An immigrant from one year subsequently recruits and retains people in subsequent years. So often what happens is an individual will come to Canada as perhaps a provincial nominee. They'll subsequently bring their family over under the family class. And what we'll have is a provincial nominee in year T and then a bunch of other people coming in under the family class in year T plus whatever. And I don't think that we collectively have appreciated how these things are interrelated. We're in the midst of a data revolution in Canada where we're starting to leverage data that are out there. You know, it's it's sort of part of this big data initiative that everyone's really excited about. But in terms of government, what we have are files that we can use for research purposes that allow us to link individuals to one another and understand the social processes of what's been happening in terms of, you know, immigration, immigrant intake. One other thing that has changed a lot, and this is very much to Canada's credit, I think, is that uh, where, and this is just my own personal experience, but wherever I seem to go, anti-immigrant sentiment is way down from what it used to be. Even in rural areas where you have um, extreme population aging, high rates of youth outmigration, 
you know, the, the, the old men in the coffee shop are talking about the need for immigrants. And you may not have seen that in the past to the same extent. So Canada is really coming around, particularly when you compare us to other countries, I think, or many other countries. I think Canada probably, probably is a model, and, and our international reputation is deserved to some extent. Is there room for improvement? Absolutely. I mean, our temporary foreign worker program has problems. Uh, I'm sure that there will be problems with re refugee settlement. But, you know, don't let the details, I, I wouldn't let the details get in the way of, a, of, a, of, a, of an overall program that works fairly well. Michael says that if you talk to folks around the world who work on immigration-related issues about the Canadian system, you are likely to hear mostly praise. The world thinks we are doing a pretty good job. He has an interesting way of describing that system. It's, it's, it's probably not the best system in the midst of systems that are worse. I mean, Canada, we have to remember this, because Canada in, on an on a international basis is probably one of the best immigrant recruitment retention countries in the world. We bring in people, they, they tend to stay, they tend to do well. I mean, not everyone, but many of them tend to do well. And they're given a lot of the services. If you go to Germany or France or something like that, they talk about Canada as though we have it all figured out. And we don't. I mean, you're looking you know, from the inside out, we obviously don't, but we're doing a pretty good job. So yes, the federal government is very active in immigration, but there are good reasons for this because um, they have this sort of bird's eye view of what's happening across the country. They have access to labor supply issues, labor de demand issues, because they can call up all of the other federal departments that work in their various subject areas and say, you know, what do you need? What's going on? You know, are our are, are programs working for, for the portfolios that you're responsible for? If not, how can we work together to change it? The temporary foreign worker program is a great is a great example of this. I mean, people have problems with the program, but still, it's a it's a good example of how um, at the time CIC worked very clo closely with ESDC to develop programs that fill local labor market demands on a temporary basis. Surprisingly, one of the things we need to learn more about is what happens to immigrants and refugees once they arrive in Canada. Well, the, the short story is um, most newcomers to Canada seem to behave at, in terms of migration uh, in a very similar manner to people that have lived here their entire lives. Uh, so young people move to cities. Well, so do newcomers to Canada by and large. That doesn't necessarily mean that all young people move to cities, just like it doesn't necessarily mean that all immigrants move to cities. But there are characteristics that predict whether or not somebody is going to end up in Toronto versus staying in you know, Bathurst. Uh, one of the strongest retention mechanisms, people don't often appreciate this, is whether an individual comes with a family. Because what that does, what that does for an individual is it provides them with all sorts of uh, integration mechanisms. You know, you bring your kids to school, you, you, they, they are part of the gymnastics team. And what that does is it gives you opportunities to, to meet people in your local community that you would not necessarily be able to gain access to uh, um, on your own. Refugees uh, move around a lot when they first come to Canada. They're not necessarily as involved as other immigrant classes in choosing where they initially start their life in Canada. So it's not surprising to see that there's often a little bit of movement in there. Not all immigrants, not all refugees move, but many of them do. Um, students, it appears as though there's a very conscious strategy to come to Canada, for at least some people, to come to Canada as a student and then subsequently become a permanent resident. Not necessarily, and that does 
does not necessarily mean that an individual is going to remain where they study. So those are, those are two things. Caregivers as well. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that people come to Canada under the caregiver program. They work the mandatory two years that they must do as a, as a temporary resident, and then they can subsequently apply for permanent status. And once they become a permanent resident, they do not necessarily need to remain with their initial employer. So there's often, once again, uh, evidence of quite a bit of movement happening. Michael Hahn says that it's not just the system that makes Canada's immigration policy relatively successful. The Canadian society has also changed over the last five decades. It became more tolerant, but it also developed new ways to support the current influx of refugees and immigrants. He compares the current situation around Syrian refugees with the wave of Vietnamese refugees who came to Canada in the 1980s. In the 1980s when the Vietnamese came, there was a fairly strong um, civil society network that probably has been undone to some extent. I mean, a lot of the Vietnamese refugees that came uh, were sponsored by churches. This time around, it's much less so. So Western University has sponsored a Syrian refugee family, and it collectively is is responsible for ensuring the well-being of this family, and it seems as though it's going fairly well. with the Vietnamese in, the, in the, the 70s and 80s, it probably would have been a church that stepped up and did all of these jobs. So it's not just that the composition of immigrants has changed, but the composition of the society that they join has changed. This is really an experiment in collaboration. And my hope is that, uh, my hope is of course that it will be overwhelmingly successful, but also that the successes will be multiplied and that it could be used for other programs. There's no distinct reason why it is just refugees that are being that are being settled in the way that they are. We could expand this program across other categories and this could become the new normal. It's almost a decentralized model of immigration. Rural communities have the most to gain from a decentralization process because they probably feel as though they're ignored by and large. You know, whether they are or not is, is a different question, but they don't necessarily have the resources at this point to, to lobby the federal government to get more immigrants. The question of rural immigration is something that Michael Hahn finds fascinating, because to him, it speaks about deep social and economic changes that we are experiencing as a society. The rural question is, is one that I, uh, fascinates me because what ends up happening um, is that we are, this is my interpretation, it seems as though we're in the midst of somewhat of, an, of another industrial revolution. So just as we moved away from becoming an agrarian society to becoming uh, one that was based heavily on manufacturing, uh, it seems as though we're, we're now starting to move a little bit away from manufacturing and almost reverting back to the extraction of raw materials and, re- and natural resources. So each of these industri- each of these industrial compositions pr- um, presuppose a distribution of the population. So m- agricultural, an agri- agrarian-based society had people sort of dotted across the landscape in family farms. Uh, each of them had their own acreage. But now, you know, when we move towards manufacturing, that really made a strong case for urbanization because people clustered around their, their, the plant or factory where they worked. Now, this is something new, right? I mean, Alberta's going through a bit of a slump, but it's going to bounce back. And when it does, it will bring people in from all over Canada. People are coming to work from all different parts of Canada. So now, for the first time in our history, I think, the connection that exists between where an individual works and where they live has been severed to some extent. So you can live in Newfoundland and work in Alberta, 
and it seems perfectly normal. And that's not to say that everyone is doing that because there are still large swaths of our economy that, 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 that root people. But there's this growing part of our economy that seems to be doing fairly well where people can come to work from all over the place. So the implications that that has for, for rural Canada is that you can live wherever you want. As long as you have access to an airport, you can fly to work. So I think this is a really interesting and exciting time because what we may see is that some of the drivers of urbanization are being undone by the industrial composition of the current industrial composition of Canadian society. This is the, the main one of the main drivers of the research that Barbara Nice is doing with her with her funded projects on employment related geographical mobility. What are people doing? Why are they making the choices they do? Is it is it simply because their family is unwilling to leave Newfoundland or wherever they are? Is it because they grew up there and they really don't have any interest in moving to Fort McMurray? Is it because the, they're, they're, um, that Fort McMurray does not provide them with the amenities or access that they want? I mean, in some ways, it's too early to tell. One of the explanations that I'm exploring is the extent to which a person's age is a strong predictor of whether or not they're going to subsequently move to Fort McMurray or wherever the, wherever the opportunities are. If you're 25, you're not going to have the same ties to your community necessarily that somebody who's 55 would. Plus, you don't really have as much of your working life left. So it's possible if you're a 55-year-old and you've just been laid off from whatever, mining, uh, and you want to go to Fort McMurray, well, you really only have to work for another 10 years or so before you can retire. That's probably less of an incentive to move than if you're 25 and you have 40 years left in the labor market. How we recruit immigrants matters, especially in rural areas, where the retention of immigrants tends to be more of a problem than in urban areas. I think one of the things that we, we should probably think about collectively a little bit more is the extent to which it makes sense to recruit immigrants in small numbers from various parts of the world to rural areas versus sort of cluster recruitment. Uh, our history strongly suggests that people tend to move with uh, other people from their country and wherever they settle, if they have their own built-in community they're more likely to stick around than if you have one immigrant coming from Japan, one from China, one from Uganda, etc., and you put them all into an area, uh, a rural area. I think one of the strong drivers of rural to urban migration is that people want to find members of their own community, and they're unable to do so in a rural area. So it sort of undoes rural immigration and re immigrant recruitment. But if we could cluster recruit pick a group, uh, and bring them to a community that is rural, there might be evidence of higher recruitment, uh, higher retention rates. It's, again, it's a question we haven't really explored yet, but I think it would be fascinating to take a closer look at. How did we do it in the past? Uh, it was much more haphazard. I mean, we gave away free land, really. <laughs> so, so, you know, various people would be pushed out of their home countries because there was hardship there, war, whatever the, whatever the drivers were, and they would go where the opportunities were. And if the opportunities entailed free land and they were uh, agriculturalists, well, then they would end up in Manitoba, for example. And of course, that's not so much of a possibility anymore. Well, no, not to the same extent. But, but you know, getting back to an, uh, our, our discussion a moment ago of where you, you kind of see some evidence of where a person works being taken apart from where they, where they live. Uh, 
Well, this does once again provide another opportunity. If somebody wants to become part of this mobile uh, workforce, they can live wherever they choose to. So if we can pick off the amenities and identify the amenities that they're most interested in, then it's possible that we could start to bump up rural immigration. So how do we attract and retain immigrants in rural areas? Oh, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, I, I think, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit biased, but I think one of the early steps would be to talk to researchers who work in this area and identify the characteristics of the community. So look at what, basically do some sort of a, an inventory of what exists. Then use the inventory of what, what exists to try to recruit. So an example would be... Um, trying to think of one. Uh, Temiskaming Shores, for example, in Northern Ontario. They have, they have a, a need for people that are working in mid to low skill level jobs. So given that that's the case, it doesn't necessarily make sense to go after um, engineers because what's the, it's, it's unlikely that they're going to stay and there are not a lot of opportunities for them. Instead, if you, could do an, if you could take a look at Temiskaming Shores, you would see that most young people are mobile and leaving, or many, not most, many, are young, mobile, and leaving. So it creates a gap in the labor market where there would be opportunities for people from certain, certain skill levels to, to work. Does that necessarily mean that they'll be retained? No, but it will increase the probability. There is no straight path to attracting and retaining immigrants. I asked Michael Hahn if he could outline some of the questions small towns across the country should be asking themselves in order to improve their immigration record. Composition of the labor force. So supply-demand would be one of the early things you'd want to look at. Additionally, I'd want to look at the extent to which people of various groups have outmig- high outmigration rates. So um, there are often there are often sort of surprise retention statistics that come out. And an example would be um, Koreans in Fredericton, for example. Why do Koreans stay in Fredericton? Well, I I don't know. Uh, Why are they more likely to stick around than other groups? It's a good question. Uh, We don't necessarily know the answer, but there's something going on there. And even if we don't fully understand it, we now know that the trend exists. So it makes a lot of sense to try to recruit more people from Korea. If you're you're the mayor of Fredericton, you're trying to recruit people. Um, Temiskaming Shores has not, and I'm mentioning Temiskaming Shores because I'm working with them. Uh, Temiskaming Shores has not necessarily been able to do that yet. And, you know, I think an initial thing to look at would be the, the group-specific retention rates. Build on what's, do what works. It's not, it's not a sort of a philosophical approach to immigration. It's, it's merely a what works approach. What are the retention rates of people of various visible minority categories in a region? And if you find that people of South Asian descent have very low retention rates, um, for example, there are multiple explanations. One of them is that the host society is not necessarily welcoming, but other ones are that you know these people will not stay here because there's something about the area that they just that just doesn't appeal to them, so they end up moving. Um, knowing that what the retention rates are is a good first step to in- enhancing recruitment. Once you have an idea who is likely to be interested in becoming a part of your community, you have to bring people in. And while there are several mechanisms to make that happen, there is one partner you will have to work with. Well, you have to work with uh, various levels of government. And and the federal government is becoming more and more uh, 
they're working in, in closer collaboration with regional governments and regional stakeholders. So the refu- refugees, the 25,000 refugees that came in is a great example of how uh, a centrally managed program was effectively disseminated at the local level. So, you know, London, for example, was very active in recruiting the re- refugees that came here. And, you know, that's a good example. And that's a good model, I think, that can be reproduced elsewhere. Um, for other groups. So if you decide that you need people that can um, operate at the middle management level, one of the things to do is work your way up through the province because you would have to decide if you want to bring them in as provincial nominees. uh, And then um, they can help you work with the federal government to bring people in. I mean, don't forget, the government of Canada probably has the strongest incentive to ensure that the refugee, uh, sorry, the immigrants that they recruit are successfully retained in that they fill gaps in the labor market. Canada is doing better than most countries when it comes to attracting people from all over the world and the many talents they bring with them. But there is more that we could do. Here is Michael's advice. I think that we need to have closer, a better sense, closer collaboration um, between people that look at what the labor market of the future will require and the types of supply, labor supply, that will be available. So, you know, well, uh, I mentioned Bathurst, New Brunswick, a moment ago. I used to live there as well, so that's why I keep bringing up examples. Um, you know, they have, um, the CBC reported that there are, are three times as many people over the age of 65 as there are under the age of 15. Like This is, on, on, on an historical basis, this is unprecedented. What will this mean in terms of where the labor gaps are? Well, you could make the assumption that the composition of Bathurst's economy will remain exactly as it is, but that would be erroneous because there will be fairly significant increases in needs for health care down the road because you know these, these people are going to continue to age. And as people age, they require different services and access to different services. So it would be really good if I think governments could start to think about, and they are, but I mean, continue to think about what will we need to do to ensure that people of Bathurst have all the services and amenities they need uh, 20 years down the road. All the while, maintaining some of the sources of economic activity that are there because I mean we can't regions cannot just become all regions of Canada cannot become service economies because you need sources of growth and you need sources of external external investment but uh, at the same time there are there will be a growing need for different types of services embrace the reality of your of your community um, you can you can work against various forces but at the same time you have to plan for contingencies so again youth out migration uh, I came from a small rural Ontario town and uh, youth out migration rates are fairly high as they are in most rural Ontario towns people go to the big cities particularly Toronto uh, I, I think if I was a mayor in a region I would probably launch a, a two-pronged campaign that, first of all, talks to young people. I mean, this doesn't happen. Talk to young people about why they're leaving. What's going on? What are their goals? Do they have a clear sense of what their futures are going to look like? Or are they simply um, chasing the idea of living in the city? Because, you know, living in the city and, and dreaming about living in the city are not necessarily the same thing. So there's that. Uh, second of all, assuming that things like youth out migration remain at the rate they are, think about how you're going to be able to satisfy the demands of the future. And this will require a fairly collaborative process with local stakeholders. Uh, 
employment councils, for example, employment officers. Um, some rural jurisdictions are actually setting these things up, and one of their main focuses is trying to increase immigration to the area. This is really interesting, I think, because what it does is it mobilizes a certain level of resources at the local level. It heightens awareness. So you have, you have respected business leaders in the community saying, we need immigrants and we need to retain more of our young people. It's not the way it used to be where we can just, you know, hope for the best, uh, raise wages $1 an hour, and all of a sudden we'll have more applications. We need to think more proactively. What do young people need? Is it uh, flexible work hours? Is it um, the opportunity to, to go to school while working? You know, these things didn't necessarily exist in the past to the extent that they, that they needed to, whereas now there's a new reality uh, and we need, I think we all collectively need to embrace it. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Brian First, and my guest today was Dr. Michael Hahn, Canada Research Chair in Immigration and Ethnic Relations at Western University in London, Ontario. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Centre of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through our Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you like the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I am Boyan First, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.